It's really my pleasure today to introduce our speaker, Dr. Eddie Fan. Dr. Fan did uh, some of his training right here in, in, in our neighborhood at the institution across town, Johns Hopkins, but we'll forgive him for that. Um, and then uh, after his training at Johns Hopkins, returned home uh, to Toronto, where he is now a professor of medicine uh, in the Department of Medicine at University of Toronto. Um, I've been a big fan of his, uh, reading his papers and following him on social media for his work in uh, driving pressure um, and sort of the role of driving pressure in ARDS and, and some of the clinical trial work that I think him and his team are starting to um, develop and, and, and starting to work on in terms of, um, uh, you know, driving pressure and using driving pressure to titrate the way we manage patients with ARDS and, and looking at whether or not that changes our, our outcomes of our patients. So I'm really excited to hear your talk today, Dr. Fan. Thank you for being here. I'm sorry we don't have you in person, um, but I very much look forward to it. Uh, so at, at your um, leisure, go ahead and take it away. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for the kind invitation and agreed. I wish I could uh, be there in person, but hopefully this will be okay. And uh, and please uh, feel free. I'll try to, I have like two screens. So I have the chat sort of open, but if you want to interrupt with questions, comments, or just general feelings or disagreements, please feel free to do so. Make it a lively presentation, but obviously happy to take questions also at the end uh, if you're interested. So I'm going to talk today about um, the role of driving pressure and mechanical power. I think these things have kind of grown together, at least in the literature more recently, as being sort of hot novel parameters that people are thinking about in the management of patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure or ARDS, as Andrea uh, mentioned, So, and talk a little bit about our research uh, on these uh, ideas uh, with you. Uh, here are my disclosures. I won't be speaking about any specific uh, devices in uh, today's talk, so hopefully no uh, relevant disclosures to what we're speaking about today. Okay, so the problem. So we're talking about driving pressure and mechanical power, and again, a lot of this literature is focused on ARDS, and again, I think no time today to speak specifically about ARDS in terms of who knows what ARDS is or what is ARDS. It keeps changing every few years. So, um, but again, a lot of the literature at least is focused on this. So we'll start here and extrapolate, or maybe I'll convince you that we might extrapolate to a larger, broader population. But, you know, ARDS is a big public health problem, however you define it. This was our work uh, using the Berlin definition to understand the global epidemiology of ARDS following the uh, definition in 2012. Uh, so looking at 500 ICUs in 50 countries around the world, we figured that actually RDS represents about 10% of ICU admissions worldwide. About a quarter of all mechanically ventilated patients have ARDS as per the Berlin definition. And if you use sort of the estimates or the data that we collected from these ICUs and scale it up using data from WHO for population, it, it means about 3 million patients per year being ventilated for ARDS. So it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of patients globally and a, and a, and a lot of, uh, morbidity, mortality, and costs that are being uh, associated with this uh, condition. And of course, I would say one of the biggest um, advances in our understanding of ERDS in the last 40, 50 years is, on, is this idea that unfortunately, we need mechanical ventilation to save these patients' lives. They typically come with life-threatening gas exchange problems, including severe hypoxemia and severe hypercapnia and respiratory acidosis. But what we've come to understand is, is that Actually, it's a double-edged sword because mechanical ventilation itself, although it could fix some of these gas exchange problems and sustain life, it can often perpetuate the underlying lung injury and may actually worsen outcomes depending on how clinicians are setting mechanical ventilation. And so, of course, this is the idea of ventilator-induced lung injury. And here's a very nice uh, review article from years ago now from my colleague Art Sletsky here in Toronto and Marco Ranieri, who's down in Bologna, sort of telling us how it's very interesting that the injured lung can translate a mechanical stress that's induced by mechanical ventilation 
into a biological stress. And that leads to many of the problems or challenges that we see in patients with ARDS. So at the top, you could see, hope you can see my arrow, but you can see two examples at the extreme that whether you're ventilating the patient at low lung volumes and having repetitive opening and closing or repetitive atelectasis at end inspiration, or you have hyperinflation and over distension at end, um, at end inspiration. The other was end expiration. Um, both of these sorts of mechanical stresses can be transformed by the injured lung, you would see on the bottom, into a biological stress. So these stresses translate into the transcription and expression of a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, proliferative um, uh, biomarkers as well, and all these sorts of things you could see here, like tumor necrosis factor alpha, IL-1 beta, IL-6, and all these sorts of things. And because the lung is injured and leaky, these mediators leak out of the injured lung into the systemic circulation, and then they can be carried to cause distant organ dysfunction. So AKI, myocardial depression, encephalopathy, coagulopathy, and these sorts of things. And these trigger multi-organ failure, and the multi-organ failure leads to death. And this is important because, again, as much as this syndrome is a syndrome of, um, you know, acute inflammatory, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, 90% of ARDS patients die of multi-organ failure and sepsis, and only 10% of patients die of hypoxemia. So we think this is a very important target in terms of figuring out the mechanism that we can that we can target in order to improve outcomes in this syndrome. And of course, the landmark trial that we that we think about, or that really has been the cornerstone of supportive care, at least in the ARDS uh, syndrome for the last, again, 20 years now, is the ARDS uh, network trial, the ARMA trial, demonstrating that low tidal volume ventilation, targeting six mils per kilo predicted body weight and keeping plateau area pressure less than 30, as compared to sort of usual care at that time, which was ventilating patients with more 12 closer to 12 mils per kilo and a higher plateau pressure led to a nearly 9% reduction, absolute risk reduction in death. Um, and again, I would challenge you to think of other interventions in medicine that lead to such a dramatic improvement in mortality. There are hardly any. Um, but again, the sobering thing here is, is that not so much that how we set the ventilator um, leads to some change in the underlying pathology that leads to ARDS, right? Changing the tidal volume and monitoring the airway pressure doesn't change the bacteria causing pneumonia or the gastric contents causing uh, aspiration pneumonitis or the pancreatitis or the trauma. We're just causing less harm while we're trying to support these patients to recovery. So this is a very important idea that we're not really treating the underlying problem. We're just not perpetuating any further harm. And this has really been the cornerstone of management for ARDS um, for many, many years now. We've codified many of these uh, recommendations to guidelines. And uh, of course, the first set that was a uh, three society uh, collaboration between ATS, ESICM, and SCCM that we published in 2017, that really the cornerstone of the recommendations was a strong recommendation for the use, again, of low tidal volume ventilation. And we've recently updated it, was just published last week, again, in conjunction with a presentation at the Canadian um, critical care forum here and was presented by Nita Kadir and Serena Sahetia, who again is also down the street at Johns Hopkins, um, providing an update on certain questions. But again, the cornerstone of therapy here being this idea of lung protective ventilation with very low tidal volumes and uh, limited uh, plateau airway pressure. The challenge, of course, is that despite this data and these evidence-based recommendations, we still haven't made a huge dent in outcomes in this, in this syndrome. So again, when we look at the lung safe study and we look at all comers, mortality remains about 40%. And that's really unchanged when you look at large epidemiologic studies over the last few decades. Certainly there was an increasing mortality as you increase the severity of ARDS 
ranging from the mid 30% range to nearly 50% in severe ARDS. But again, the idea that at least historically, we haven't made a huge difference. So of course, mortality remains unacceptably high. Not a lot of time again today to talk about the very important, not just mortality, but morbidity and complications that's persistent and long lasting in survivors. That's also very important. So we need to do better. We need to find new ways to mitigate or ameliorate these outcomes for our patients and improve Apple survivor, survival and survivorship uh, in these patients. And of course, the interest has now come to new targets rather than nutritional ones of tidal volume, plateau area pressures or something else that we could target that might mitigate ventilator-induced lung injury further and lead to better benefits for our patients. And again, I would say that now we're sort of interested in this idea of moving to a broader population of patients because we find that actually the mortality in patients who have acute hypoxemic respiratory failure not just RDS remains also unacceptably high. Again, this is a sub-analysis from our lung safe study that was led by Tai Pham, who's in Paris. And really, if you focus on this Kaplan-Meier curve on the right, basically what mattered was not so much meeting the definition, but really the degree of infiltration or parenchymal involvement that you had. So certainly patients who had unilateral infiltrates compared to those that met the Berlin criteria for ARDS had worse mortality and a lower chance of ventilator liberation. Uh, maybe that's not too um, uh, too surprising. Again, and it's consistent with previous ARDS letter, literature saying the more suggesting the more quadrants on your X-ray that you had involved, suggesting more severity of lung injury, the worse your outcomes were. But interestingly, if you didn't quite, um, if you look on the right, if you didn't quite meet the ARDS definition of having bilateral infiltrates, but you still had two quadrant involvement on your X-ray, say all on one side, so you had similar involvement, it just wasn't geographically, if you will, distributed. Well, the outcomes are pretty much the same. Okay, so really, again, you know, no time today maybe to delve into the what is ARDS or who really knows what ARDS is. But really, again, if you have a similar sort of involvement and severity, then patients who now sort of meet this idea of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, PF less than 300 with infiltrates that maybe don't necessarily meet the ARDS criteria, they also have an unacceptably high mortality. And again, we might think that how we ventilate these patients and the same sorts of strategies could be very important in this population. Again, with our intervention now reaching a broader population of patients that we might improve outcomes in by targeting some of these, um, these parameters. So today we wanna to talk about things, uh, these two concepts of driving pressure and um, mechanical power. Uh, this is actually a nice um, you know, uh, um, schematic that I found from this Korean uh, journal that really shows all the breakdown of many of the parameters that we see when we look at uh, patients who are being mechanically ventilated. And so, so one of the things that we really want to focus on today is this idea of driving pressure. We'll talk about why we suddenly have this renaissance, I would say, in the in our um, in our focus for driving pressure. But driving pressure is really the is a surrogate for transpulmonary pressure that but we measure at the airway opening, and it's the difference under static conditions between plateau airway pressure and PEEP. Um, sometimes in patients who are not uh, necessarily passive or it's difficult to me measure a plateau pressure, you might substitute peak pressure for plateau pressure. And you might get what we call a dynamic driving pressure. So that takes into account some of the efforts that might be made uh, by the patient. But driving pressure is, again, at least in many of the studies, is a static measurement. That's the difference between plateau airway pressure and PEEP. And the other very nice thing about it, if you rearrange the equations, is that Plateau pressure actually represents, plateau pressure, driving pressure actually represents the tidal volume scaled to respiratory system compliance. And that's actually very um, intuitive and interesting because, again, it's this whole idea that 
we typically scale tidal volume to predicted body weight because we're trying to scale tidal volume to lung size. And in mammals, big and small, including us as humans, lung size is more directly related to your height uh, rather than it is to your weight. If we all suddenly gain 50 kilograms of weight in the room, our lung size would have changed not at all. And that's why we don't index tidal volume to actual body weight, but we index it to height. And there's, as you know, sex-specific equations for height, different for males than females, representing the difference in um, lung sizes and uh, by gender. But the idea here is, is that probably better than predicted body weight is scaling it to respiratory system compliance because respiratory system compliance is a good surrogate for the size of the baby lung. So again, this concept from Luciano Gannoni um, that tells us that you know ARDS is heterogeneous both in time and in space. And what's available when you look at a CT scan is only a baby-sized lung that's available for functional gas exchange in an adult-sized body. And that's why we get all these challenges of hypercapnia, respiratory acidosis, and hypoxemia. And really, it's the baby lung that accepts the ventilation, and, and, and we'll talk about the mechanical energy or the mechanical power as well, that is the highest risk of ventilator-induced lung injury, right? Where the ventilation goes is where the danger or the risk of ventilator-induced lung injury could be. The smaller the baby lung, the smaller the surface area that's available to accept the mechanical stress of ventilation or the mechanical power delivered by the ventilator. And so scaling tidal volume to the size of the baby lung, um, the circuit being respiratory system compliance, is an important idea that might be better than just scaling tidal volume to predictive body weight at all. And then, of course, the mechanical power represents sort of the energy per tidal cycle or per respiratory rate. That So the energy that's being delivered by the ventilator to the injured lung that has to be dissipated by the structure of the lung. So what's available to dissipate the energy that's being delivered by the ventilator on a breath-to-breath basis, again, is a concept that now Luciano Gannoni has uh, uh, developed and really thinks that maybe that's actually the mechanistic driver of ventilator-induced lung injury, that because the ventilator is delivering energy with every breath, the surface area available to dissipate that energy, some of that is going to be absorbed. And, and what gets absorbed it might be the sort of the factor that's most important in causing ventilator-induced lung injury. So strategies to mitigate mechanical power might be even better than mitigating driving pressure, which might be even better than mitigating tidal volume. And we'll get into some of that idea here. So driving pressure. So this is the landmark paper that really helped us to sort of bring about a new appreciation, if you will, about this idea of driving pressure. This is a study by Marcelo Amato, which is a post-hoc analysis of a number of randomized controlled trials of mechanical ventilation um, where he demonstrated through a relatively sophisticated causal mediation analysis that basically the higher the driving pressure is nearly a linear, not quite linear, but looks pretty linear, association between higher driving pressure and mortality that you could see here. There might be a bit of a threshold at 15 where it crosses the relative risk of one. So driving pressures higher than 15 seem to be very significantly associated with higher mortality, which is whereas less than 15, they're uh, not they're associated um, with uh, protection. But again, what you could see here is that there's not really a great plateau. So the lower the driving pressure, the better for patients. And the important thing of this analysis that was published in the New England Journal is that he showed that in these using the data from these traditional randomized control trials was that driving pressure was more important or more significantly associated with mortality than either plateau airway pressure or tidal volume. Sort of again, suggesting that any benefits that were mediated by controlling plateau pressure or tidal volume, they happened through reductions in driving pressure. So that perhaps driving pressure is the key variable that we should be targeting um, to reduce ventilator-induced lung injury further 
rather than things like tidal volume and plateau area pressure, because their analysis sort of suggested that any effects that were beneficial were mediated through reductions in driving pressure. So this is sort of brought the idea to it before. A couple caveats about this study. One, it's a post hoc observational study. So they used existing data and they use these sophisticated causal mediation analyses to understand the relationship between things like tidal volume, driving pressure, um, plateau area pressure, and then confounders like respiratory system compliance, PF ratio. These sorts of things that were surrogates for severity of lung injury and our outcome of interest, which was mortality in many of these trials. Um, the second is that they only utilized day one driving pressure. Okay, so this is an association between driving pressure and the first day of mechanical ventilation and doesn't take into account Obviously, all the changes that might occur over time in these patients, there's no longitudinal assessment of driving pressure. This is linking day one driving pressure uh, to mortality. So again, very important observation and a very important, I would say, advance in our understanding of what might be next for mechanical ventilation, but some important caveats uh, of this particular study. We found very similar results in the LungSafe study again, because this paper had come out from Marcelo Amato just the year before, we decided to look at driving pressure in lung safe. And again, what you could see here on the left in panel A is, is that as driving pressure increased in this cohort, indeed, the probability of death also increased. But we found a very similar relationship with plateau airway pressure, which again, follows from the original ARMA study. So not a lot of difference, but certainly the same association in these um, patients that were taken from ICUs around the world, as we saw in, um, uh, in um, Marcelo's analysis in the England Journal. And indeed, even in the real world, and this is just a more recent example from two hospitals using their electronic health record data, that again, even in the real world, so without a, a very controlled environment of looking at data from randomized control trials, not a prospective observational study where we had very clear criteria for what kind of data to collect and when to get it, this is real world data, again, showing that higher driving pressure is associated with um, an increase of mortality and uh, fewer ventilator-free days. Again, just making this inference more robust that whether you're looking at RCT data, real um, prospective observational data, or real-world data, that this uh, association seems to be borne out. Again, this is work from Serena Sahetia from uh, Johns Hopkins with some of her investigators there, including Roy Brower and Will Checkley, uh, showing that even in non-ARDS patients, and again, probably because we don't, again, have a good handle on how different ARDS patients are necessarily from some non-ARDS patients. But what they found was that, again, that even in non-ARDS patients, the vast majority of these who, again, don't fulfill the criteria, but had conditions like pneumonia, aspiration, all the sort of usual etiologic factors that cause ARDS, they had a very similar association between higher driving pressure and higher mortality that was also um, amongst the patients who did have ARDS, a very similar association. So again, supporting our idea of broadening our net, casting a wider net to think about how our ventilatory strategies or management could affect not just these special ARDS patients, but probably the broader population of patients receiving mechanical ventilation that now have this entity that we're calling acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, or ARF, for lack of a better, better term. I just want to caution you, though, again, that right now what we're doing is we're building this story, which is very I'm sure familiar to many in critical care that here's an idea we have strong physiologic rationale for this very supportive observational data. We're seeing a very consistent signal across cohorts around the world. So our, our uh, confidence that this is a real phenomenon is definitely increasing, but we don't have any specific randomized controlled trials showing that a driving pressure limited strategy is any better than sort of 
traditional low tidal volume ventilation or whatever you want to call usual care. That's what we're missing at the moment. And that's the reason, for instance, in France from the Riva network, they've actually in their formal guidelines, there is no data to allow a recommendation for the use of a mechanical ventilation strategy based solely on limiting driving pressure. We think that this is important. It might be something that you measure. But I do have I do have to say, and I'd be interested to hear at the end of this talk, we certainly now know many ICUs around the world that have already moved all the way forward to driving pressure, that this is the thing they're monitoring. They've altered all their ventilation protocols to, to account for this. And it's very interesting because at the moment, all we have is this high-quality observational data, a strong physiologic rationale. Stami, if you've heard this story before, we've been burned many times in critical care when we based our house of cards on these sorts of foundations without having a clinical trial demonstrate a benefit. Um, and probably there's very importantly heterogeneity of treatment effect here that we want to, like maybe it's not going to be the same, the benefits may not be the same for all patients. This is really nice work from my colleague Ewan Gallagher here in Toronto, working again with Marcelo Amato and a bunch of investigators from around the world. Uh, again, looking retrospectively at RCT data showing that actually low tidal volume ventilation is most beneficial in patients who have very high elastins. Now, you're going to have to blame Ewan for this. I don't know why he went with elastins rather than compliance, because I only like to think about compliance. But so high elastins, remember, is the inverse of compliance. So high elastins means low compliance, stiff lungs. So limiting tidal volume was most important in the patients with the sicker or stiffer lungs, high elastins, low compliance, and really didn't have any significant benefit amongst those like who, um, whose lungs were not as stiff, had low elastins or high compliance. And their high tidal volume and low tidal volume didn't really have much of a difference. They also found that in the patients with the stiff lungs, that lowering VT probably had exerted its effect again by lowering driving pressure. And maybe these are the patients, if we're going to design a future trial of driving pressure limited strategies, this might be the population we want, we want to enrich on because this seems to be the population that'll benefit the most. And again, it's probably not too... Um, it's probably not too non-intuitive to think that way, right? The patients with the stiffest lungs, the smallest baby lungs, um, the highest elastins, lowest compliance, these are the ones at the highest risk of ventilator-induced lung injury. And so if we have an intervention that's focused on mitigating ventilator-induced lung injury, these are the patients we want to target. We, we did an observational analysis here with Martin Erners, one of my graduate students, now one of our uh, faculty here in Toronto, using data we have from a large registry here in Toronto, and Carl will know this, I based this registry completely on the work that I did with Dale Needham in Baltimore, and Carl was a part of it, called the ICAP registry. So we call this one ICOR. We're not too imaginative up here to <laughs> change the names, Carl, but it's something slightly different. But we had over 10,000 patients now in this registry, and we looked at the association between driving pressure, dynamic driving pressure, so not static driving pressure. Again, and I'll talk a little bit about why we chose that, mainly because it's easy to read off almost any modern ventilator. But we see a very similar association between higher driving, dynamic driving pressure and mortality in these patients who have acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. So many of them have ARDS, but not all of them. But probably importantly is this idea that not only is there, uh, again, if you skip to D, effect modification by severity that follows from the work that Ewan did, but a very consistent signal that, again, now we're taking into account this longitudinal nature of mechanical ventilation, right? It occurs over days. It's not just we figure out what the day one driving pressure is and then we have some ideas. Is that we found a very consistent effect of driving pressure over time in that it was significantly associated with increased mortality almost over the entire duration of mechanical ventilation in these patients, suggesting that if you're going to have a strategy that limits driving pressure, you probably need to carry it forward for at least a good amount of time. It won't be something that happens for a day, two days, or three days that 
over the course of mechanical ventilation, limiting driving pressure seems to be very important um, in these patients. And again, this is supported by this more recent work um, from our colleagues in Greece showing a very similar thing that you could see that when you look at, again, this is more a cross-sectional analysis rather than a longitudinal analysis, but when you look at driving the association between driving pressure and mortality, that you can see it's a very steep and linear association with a significant odds ratio when you look at the driving pressure on day seven, similarly on day 14. By the time you get out to day 21, they didn't see much of a significant association anymore, slightly in contrast to our work, but certainly suggesting that over the first 14 days, there was a very significant association. So again, a strategy that you might want to employ could go over a more prolonged period of time in order to uh, have the biggest bang for your buck in affecting mortality in these patients. We saw a very similar result, again, using these observational um, data techniques. Again, this is work that Martin did for his PhD, where, again, we use the data from our registry, I4 in Toronto, 12,000 patients. And here what we did, because we currently don't have a clinical trial of driving pressure, we did the next best thing, which is emulating uh, uh, a clinical trial. So this is a strategy now called uh, target trial emulation. So the target trial is the trial you'd love to run. And when you can't do that, you do the next best thing, which is try to use observational data to emulate that target trial. So we use this in COVID as well uh, for ECMO, because as much as we tried to organize a randomized control trial on ECMO during COVID, that was a bit logistically challenging, even though we had many discussions with NIAID about running uh, such a trial, but it just never came to fruition. So here, while we're waiting for a clinical trial driving pressure, we emulated it with the 12,000 patients in our registry. And what you could see here is, is that, again, this is a group of patients already receiving low tidal volume ventilation. The average tidal volume in these 12,000 patients is about six and a half mils per kilo. So they're receiving evidence-based low tidal volume ventilation. The added benefit of limiting driving pressure below 15 of these patients was ba basically a risk difference of about 2%. So something important, again, if you're broadening it to the majority of patients receiving mechanical ventilation, a 2% absolute reduction in mortality is going to be important, but it's not as big when you add it to Again, what we know is the 9% absolute risk reduction when we, we had when we lowered tidal volume from 12 to 6 bills per kilo. The added benefit of limiting driving pressure amongst those that's where it was high when you're already limiting tidal volumes is about 2%. It also translated to some benefits in terms of a, a higher um, uh, probability of being liberated from mechanical ventilation earlier. We also modeled different, as we sort of discussed, how consistent this effect could be model different interventions to see how that would work. And what you could see here from these uh, Kaplan-Meier curves is, again, this idea that starting early and running it for up to 14 days, that led, led to the biggest risk difference compared to different strategies of an early and short intervention or a delayed intervention or a late intervention. You can see the risk differences here. Um, some of them are not, not all of them are significant, but much smaller than the risk difference of starting early, oops, starting early and keeping it on for a good duration, again, because of this very consistent effect of driving pressure on mortality that we, we saw from our data. So why dynamic for static driving pressure? I could tell you that this paper of uh, Martin's went through peer review at a number of uh, locations with a lot of very uh, good peer review and uh, comments, and many of them centered around this idea of why we decided to use dynamic driving pressure. And part of the challenge, of course, is that we know in the real world that even in clinical trials, plateau pressure is infrequently measured. So even in some of these ARDSnet studies, plateau pressure is missing in up to 50% of patients, okay? And so without plateau pressure, you can't make a static calculation of driving pressure uh, in these patients. So even if we think it's very useful, if you're, not, if you're missing this parameter in the vast majority of patients, really the clinical utility 
at the bedside is going to be somewhat limited. So dynamic driving pressure, where you substitute peak inspiratory pressure for plateau pressure, and then you look at the PEEP, um, it's, you know, we could read that and off any modern ventilator. It's pretty reliable and easy to use, uh, even in less experienced centers. And again, the idea here could be that it could be an early warning signal for those people who are very wedded to the idea that we should be focusing on static driving pressure. Maybe a high dynamic driving pressure is the thing that triggers your, um, your respiratory therapist, the clinicians at the bedside or whomever to measure static driving pressure, if that's possible, if you're not wanting to believe the dynamic driving pressure situation. Um, we understand that dynamic driving pressure in spontaneously breathing patients likely underestimates transpulmonary driving pressure. But again, in our results, that would have biased results towards the null. We still saw significant risk reduction. So again, we think there's something robust here. And we performed, I didn't have time to show you, a number of sensitivity analyses where they were robust, including when we limited the population to about 3,000 patients who were paralyzed and we measured static driving pressure. We had a very similar result. Okay, so in a number of sensitivity analysis, we got the same results for the dynamic driving pressure um, as you would have for static driving pressure. And again, similarly, we had some um, concerns about patients like who have, might have COPD or asthma, where um, they might have high dynamic driving pressure because of high airway resistance. But again, because the parenchymal, the parenchyma might be very normal, so a low plateau pressure, um, they would have had very good outcomes. But again, this would have biased our results to, towards the nulls. If you've got a high dynamic driving pressure that we said was associated with mortality, but now these patients actually have a good outcome because they have COPD or asthma or something like that would have biased our results to the null. So again, uh, suggesting that our results were relatively robust. So from our point of view, it's like many things in medicine where we're not saying that dynamic driving pressure is perfect, but again, it might be a good surrogate that's easy, reliable uh, uh, to measure at the bedside that signals uh, that something is going on when it's high. And again, depending on your bias, you might want to measure static driving pressure and target that, but perhaps targeting dry, dynamic driving pressure could be something that is examined in a future clinical trial. And I think again, um, again, hopefully not to commit, no, no need to convince you guys that we do need a trial. So again, I, we are kind of shocked at times when we uh, meet colleagues from around the world who have sort of bought in full, uh, full force into changing their protocols to uh, targeting driving pressure already, because we've been down this road many times. Here's a great list of interventions from Scott Stevens and Roy Brower, um, again, down the street at Johns Hopkins, where we've had this you know, this edifice built on strong physiologic rationale, uh, very supportive observational data, single center, even multi-center. But then in the end, when you run it through a clinical trial and you find out that the costs of intervening likely outweigh the benefits, there are many unintended consequences that you can't always uh, see. And when you do it in a randomized controlled trial, some of these things not only are not helpful, but actually turn out to be harmful, right? And so that's why, despite all the supportive data for driving pressure, what we really need is a clinical trial. I'm happy to report that. So this clinical trial is underway. Um, and I, I apologize, I forget if Maryland is going to be a site in this trial, but Serena is the US lead uh, for this trial um, called DRIVE. And we've embedded this trial into this large platform, um, Bayesian adaptive platform trial that we're running out of Toronto called Practical. DRIVE is in the ventilation domain that will work across a number of um, uh, patient states, including those who are intubated with lower high elastins, as well as those who are on uh, ECMO. And this is a trial that we're using to limit uh, driving pressure um, it, to less than 15, uh, with the primary outcome of ventilator-free days to day 28, measured as an ordinal outcome and not as a continuous outcome to increase power. 
the, the um, trial is a Bayesian adaptive design. So I, ideally could randomize to a, a maximum of 4,000 patients um, in total, but an 80% power to detect this uh, was stopping much earlier than that, hopefully. And we're planning to have 120 centers around the world to have this trial finish hopefully as soon as possible. We have uh, uh, many sites across Canada. We're funded by CIHR. We're hoping to get funding for this trial in, in the United States, so that we're sending some resources to centers that have already um, from Canada to the United States uh, to um, to launch the trial, as well as with sites in Ireland, Saudi Arabia, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and hoping to have this trial done in the next few years. Okay, mechanical power. So then the idea is like, okay, so driving pressure is good. And maybe one of the shortcomings of why we can't limit ventilator-induced lung injury um, as much as we'd like is this idea that we've just targeted single variables, right? We know that these patients are very complex. There's a lot going on when we ventilate these patients. Um, there's a lot of factors in play, but our traditional interventions have really only targeted one piece of the pot, right? Tidal volume, airway pressure, now maybe driving pressure, but there's a whole lot of things that likely go into this concept of ventilator-induced lung injury. And again, as I spoke about before, this is the idea of mechanical power. And this is a concept that Luciano uh, Gatnoni uh, sort of uh, worked out uh, in his publication in Intensive Care Medicine a few years ago. If you rearrange the equation of motion um, to look at sort of ventilator-related parameters that could substitute into this equation, you get this idea of delivered power, which is sort of what work is being done by the mechanical ventilator delivered over time, um, sort of per respiratory cycle, so respiratory rate, and maybe targeting all of these parameters together in a way of sort of optimization would be a more holistic approach to limiting um, ventilator-induced lung injury than just targeting a single um, parameter alone. So if you look at this, this is obviously the driving force, the number of cycles per uh, minute, which is the respiratory rate. There's an elastic component that's distending the lung. There's a resistance component to move the gas, and there's a peak volume to keep the lung open. And so the idea that maybe targeting some of these non-traditional parameters that we haven't focused on, chief amongst them might be respiratory rate in looking at mechanical power might, again, have additional gains beyond just targeting a single parameter. You can simplify this equation for bedside use to look at things that are sort of easier to see on the ventilator. So again, all the sort of familiar things that we know about, respiratory rate, tidal volume, PEEP, driving pressure, PEEP versus plateau pressure. So these are things that we can read off the ventilator and with the simplified formula, maybe tar strategies targeting a minimized mechanical power could be the way to go. And again, it's the idea that we talked about this baby lung condition where when you have a larger baby lung, so larger aerated area in black, then you're less prone to villi as compared to a smaller baby lung, less aerated area, which is more prone to villi. So again, perhaps in these kinds of patients, we want to pay close attention and perhaps have a strategy to limit mechanical power. Um, in a number of uh, studies, uh, again, these are mostly retrospective. This is uh, the experience from Utah, from Jotona and Sam Brown, uh, looking at mechanical power. And again, this idea that as mechanical power increases in this uh, panel B here, you can see that increasing mechanical power led to increasing um, uh, mortality. And uh, so again, supporting the idea that higher mechanical power was associated with worse outcomes. But again, this is just hypothesis generating data. We need a clinical trial to examine the effect of reducing mechanical power uh, in these patients. We have a very similar result in non-ARDS patients again. So this idea that we should now be broadening our net to not just look at ARDS patients, but probably all mechanically ventilated patients that have acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. This is work from Mark Schultz and colleagues using a number of um, uh, collaborative networks where they've looked at non-ARDS patients and mechanical ventilation strategies. And basically 
It's very nice color coded graph. Basically shows that when you compare mechanical power with things like driving pressure, tidal volume, and respiratory rate, you get a very consistent signal that when mechanical power is increasing, you get increasing mortality. Even when these other variables like driving pressure, tidal volume, or respiratory rate are changing, but the mechanical power stays the same, then these paired graphs show that there's really no change in mortality. So again, suggesting that perhaps mechanical power is the way to go in thinking about reducing ventilator-induced lung injury further than any single one of these traditional variables in isolation. This is a bit of a complex uh, um, picture, but I just want you to look at the lines and how they're all pointing from the bottom left to the top right. And so this was a systematic review that was led by one of our former fellows, Jose Diantes, back in uh, Argentina, uh, supervised by Ewan Gallagher, really trying to compare the different parameters to see if one was more predictive of mortality than the other. So the y-axis of all these graphs is the odds of mortality. The bottom is the sort of spread of that variable, whether it be tidal volume, driving pressure, mechanical power, some other derivatives of mechanical power like driving power or dynamic power. But the bottom line here is that the systematic review of, exist of the existing literature showed that basically all of these seem to predict mortality, right? So they all move from the bottom left to the top right. So the higher any of these variables, they seem to be associated with higher mortality. So at least this study didn't necessarily suggest that mechanical power was any better than some of these traditional variables to predict higher mortality. And probably most importantly is, again, this idea of heterogeneity of treatment effect is that probably a lot of the mechanical power equation boils down to two important variables, driving pressure and respiratory rate, right? So driving pressure being the stress that's being the main sort of driver of the stress being delivered to the injured lung, and the respiratory rate being the number of times you're forcing that stress onto the injured lung. So those are sort of the two main variables we think about in mechanical power to uh, understand how we might intervene. And so sort of uh, in this nice study from, again, Marcelo Mamato and Eduardo Costa show that, so when you boil it down, what they found out looking again, retrospectively at available data was is that driving pressure seemed to be four times more important in the mechanical power equation than respiratory rate. Sort of, again, supporting the idea that if we want to keep things simple, even if we like the mechanical power concept, almost all the bang for your buck is in limiting driving pressure. So if we want to do something easy, maybe the intervention to do is really to focus on limiting driving pressure and then seeing what might happen once you've done that as well as you can to maybe limiting respiratory rate slightly more than that. And again, there is some heterogeneity of treatment effects by compliance or elastins. So patients who have stiffer lungs uh, in red here, here's where you really get the benefit of having lower tidal volumes and lower driving pressure, you might want to trade that off to manage, you know, uh, hypercapnia by having a higher respiratory rate. Whereas in patients who have pretty good um, compliance here, it didn't really matter. You could have higher tidal volume and higher driving pressure and a lower respiratory rate. And again, the curve is pretty flat. So the risk of mortality uh, wasn't very different depending on how the trade-offs were. The most important was in the patients with the sickest or stiffest lungs where we really want to focus on driving pressure so four times more important than respiratory rates. So if you want to make a trade-off, you might have higher rates, but lower driving pressure and lower tidal volume. So again, if we were going to design a trial in the future that looked at mechanical power or something simplified here, like the four times driving pressure plus respiratory rate, we might want to focus on patients with the stiffest lungs. And again, we might want to focus on an intervention that first targets limiting driving pressure. And then if there's room to move after that, then you would focus on limiting respiratory rate. Okay, so what now? So we like all this, and I work in a place where many of my colleagues are super into physiology, um, which is not to say that I'm not, but um, like it, it's seductive, 
okay, we, we're already changing some of our bedside practice depending on which attending is on at the time. And they're focused on all kinds of things that haven't necessarily been tested in clinical trials yet, but it's seductive for us because we see it in, play out in real time in the ICU all the time. And all the, obviously a deep understanding of these principles is important for the care of these patients. But again, I would just caution you that there's still a lot that we need to figure out. This was a nice editorial um, published recently suggesting, yeah, we actually don't even know because a lot of these are cross-sectional analyses that link day one mechanical power or day one driving pressure to some outcome. We don't really know that targeting that thing or if it's a surrogate for some other concept, like driving pressure could be just a surrogate for the respiratory system compliance or some concept like recruitability and actually intervening on that that thing that's in the causal pathway and this is just a marker we're not really sure and we need that's why we need to design a trial and an intervention that'll target this to help us understand that um because again the key distinction is that interventions that limit either driving pressure or mechanical power will only improve the outcome if the relationship is causal um and again we have increasing data at least for driving pressure that it is likely causal and now we have this randomized control trial that's underway so we'll know uh shortly but designing randomized controlled trials for, for instance, of mechanical power will not be easy because, again, as you saw, there are many components. Where are the trade-offs? What is the right thing to manipulate? Should we start with tidal volume? Should we change the PEEP? What we do with respiratory rate should just be driving pressure. There's a lot of moving parts there, so it's not going to be so simple. Um, we don't know what the safe threshold of some of these things are, right? So it's like when you reach the safe limit for this, then do we start on component two? Or if we don't know the safe limit for component two, at what level do we say, Component two looks good. Let's move to component three. Uh, so these things all need to be worked out. Again, lots of suggestive experimental data that says, again, what is the right thing to start with? So this is uh, data, again, from Luciano Gannoni showing that if you have the same mechanical power, um, uh, high tidal volume, high respiratory rate, high peak, they all deliver the same amount of injury. So what is the right one to start with or fix first or lower the most? Not exactly clear. So clearly lower mechanical power was better than high mechanical power, but this doesn't tell us because it, the same mechanical power led to all to the same kind of injury. What's the right first target to, uh, to attack in such a strategy? And similarly, when we think about PEEP, we think PEEP is typically a good thing. It increases anexpiratory lung volume, again, increases homogeneity of ventilation, might lead to a situation of less ventilator-induced lung injury, but PEEP volume makes up an important component of the mechanical power uh, equation. And again, above a certain threshold here, a mechanical power of 13 joules per minute, sustained PEEP actually contributed to lung damage and injury in hemodynamic impairment. So again, how will we find the right threshold uh, for PEEP, which we traditionally think is a good thing and a lung protective maneuver uh, in this sort of situation? Um, again, we have data. This is from one of my other graduate students, Stefan Van During, who's returned to uh, Luzerne, but uh, showing that um, Again, in our data, there is no safe threshold. Maybe we just focus on panel A here. This is that the higher the mechanical power, the worse the outcomes for patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And at least from this data, there's no clear threshold that you could observe. So it's not like we could say we should keep it below 18, we should keep it below 15, keep it below 12. It's the lower the mechanical power, the better. And so again, the idea that we have to establish some trade-offs for where lowering some of these components to lower mechanical power uh, might eventually start to lead to some risks or unintended consequences that we're not to clear on, again, trying to understand the causality of um, the components of mechanical power. We're trying to actually do some sophisticated causal mediation analysis of our own, uh, sort of following from what uh, David Schoenfeld and others had done for Marcelo Amato's paper, looking at data from the previous uh, randomized control trials. So we're trying to use causal mediation analysis to understand what really is the 
contribution of things like respiratory rate, driving pressure, and some of those other PEEP, um, plateau airway pressure, peak pressure. Uh, so we're actually working very closely with a with a statistician who's an expert on this, Linda Valeri, who's at Columbia. She was at Harvard previously, and we're hoping to have some results to present on this in the near future. And then finally, if you're really thinking about the future, well, now we have some ways to actually reduce driving pressure and mechanical power to nearly zero. So I can't I couldn't give a talk on this without talking about ECMO. So of course, like the idea that you could use extracorporeal support, whether that's CO2 removal or full-out ECMO, actually to reduce driving pressure and mechanical power to nearly zero. And at least in this proof-of-concept physiologic crossover study that we performed, we showed that there was a linear, again, a linear association between driving pressure and plasma biomarkers, which we used as a surrogate for Billy, and that even when tidal volumes were really low, two and a half mils per kilo predicted body weight, small increases in driving pressure led to increases in plasma biomarkers or Billy. So again, the idea that the logical limit would be if you could reduce driving pressure to zero, no ventilation, no ventilator-induced lung injury. And maybe that's something that we could do in the future. And certainly if you're a rat, this is already in the now for you because we have these data showing that, again, near-apneic ventilation, when you're supported with something like ECMO, can basically lead to hardly any injury at all. If you focus on the pictures on the right here, because the picture is worth a thousand words, you could see that in animals that were ventilated with a near-apneic strategy on ECMO, their injury or inflammation is pretty close to sham, certainly much better than conventional protective mechanical ventilation, and certainly better. I'm not really sure why they had a non-protective, like injurious uh, mechanical ventilation strategy, but certainly better than that. So again, the future could be in these patients if we have a way to identify them, subphenotype them, understand prognostically who these, uh, you know, some predictive enrichment on who these patients are, we might identify those at the highest risk of ventilator-induced lung injury, maybe that would be the kinds of patients who where the risks of something, a strategy like this, being on extracorporeal support, minimizing mechanical power, driving pressure to its logical limit could lead to better outcomes. So at the moment, I, again, we have these evolving standards. I just caution you, this is a nice review of our article from ICM from uh, Neil Ferguson, one of my colleagues here in Toronto, suggesting that we're moving from these traditional strategies of low tidal volume, low plateau airway pressure, PFO2 tables to maybe these personalized medicine, targeting non-traditional parameters like mechanical power or driving pressure. We might have more bedside methods to customize PEEP, et cetera. But again, at the moment, we need more rigorous data for randomized controlled trials to help understand which of these strategies are efficacious and how we would translate that to care at the bedside. So I'm going to finish by saying that, you know, it's kind of sobering that for now the 50 years of ARDS, that the management is still primarily supportive with mechanical ventilation. And really the big advance is our understanding of ventilator-induced lung injury and its contribution to mortality and outcomes. And now our, our strategies are focused on trying to prevent or mitigate that. I think these novel targets like driving pressure and mechanical power are important and could be an avenue to improving outcomes further, but we need more evaluation. Again, I, I caution you that we have lots of ideas that are good in critical care, strong physiologic rationale, which unfortunately don't pan out. And again, just to say, it's not because they're not good ideas. It's just that we need a better intervention. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. I think that having a hemoglobin of 10 or 12 when you're critically ill is probably a good thing. But the challenge right now is that in 2023, we have an imperfect way of making your hemoglobin 10 or 12. We have to give allogenic blood transfusions. We had some perfect oxygen carrier that at very low risks, I think outcomes would be better and oxygen delivery would be higher. And those, so, but it's just that there are costs and unintended consequences with giving the intervention that we have now versus the one that we would hopefully ideally have sometime in the future. So it's not that these ideas are bad. It's just that currently this is the way that we can deliver it and it's not perfect. I think driving pressure based on the data that I've shown you is 
probably a good first target. Seems to be the most important component of mechanical power. But again, we need some understanding of um, how much more might be gained by mechanical power, this sort of thing. Our trial on uh, driving pressure will be out, and hopefully that'll be a good first step to understanding what the role of limiting driving pressure will be in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. So with that, I'm going to finish, um, and hopefully have some time for questions and happy to take uh, any of those that you might have.